We're going to turn again to God's Word, uh, again in the sheet in front of you, uh, in the New Testament in Luke chapter 6. If you were here last week, you'll recall um, that with Scott, we looked at an incident involving Jesus and the religious leaders on the Sabbath uh, in Luke chapter 12 and 13, as I say. And here again, uh, we see Jesus running into issues with religious leaders on two Sabbaths. So let's read together Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and his disciples began to pick some ears of corn, rub them in their hands, and eat the grain. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked round at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, again, we thank you for your word, first given to different people in very different contexts, and yet living and active alive to us today, and always speaking to us. So, Lord, we pray as we think about this issue of rest, as we continue to think of rest and Sabbath, that you would speak to us and speak into our hearts. Lord, you are the good shepherd who has laid down his life for the sheep, and you tell us that the sheep know your voice. So, may we hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever played a game where one of the players seems to be making the rules up as they go along. You know the kind of thing, you know, you've never played the game before and they have, and you're relying on them to explain the rules. And they explain them all to you, or so you thought, until you go to do something. And normally it's something that would disadvantage them. And they say, oh no, you can't do that. I forgot to tell you about that rule. You know, I don't lose if you do that. It happens frequently with my own kids, and especially because they love to play pretend. They are literally making up the game as they go along. I was standing in my mum and dad's house the other day, watching my daughter Anna play with my dad, her granda, and she said, Granda, when I blow my whistle, you run after me. (laughs) So... Okay, Anna, no problem. So she pretends to blow a whistle. She doesn't have a whistle. And she starts to run. And my dad runs after her and catches her. No, Granda. 
No, you're not supposed to catch me. You just run after me, but you don't catch me. Then comes a huff. Now, if I'd huffed like that when I was that age, I would have got a smack. But, you know, grandchildren are allowed to do anything. So, oh, sorry, darling, you know, didn't realize Granda won't catch you the next time. And on it goes. They're always making up rules. You can't play football with them because the teams change too frequently. Who is a goalkeeper, therefore, who's allowed to use their hands, you know? If an adult scores a goal, they're automatically moved onto the children's team. That was their goal. And I think we've seen it a wee bit over the last year and a half with politicians. And now, I don't envy them leading the way through a global pandemic. Nobody really knew what was going to happen half the time if we made the decisions. So I don't envy them. Schools are closed. Oh, we won't do free school meals when we're in lockdown. Oh, the public don't like that. We will do free school meals while we're in lockdown, and, and so on. Trying to base decisions on evidence, but in reality, not really knowing what is going to happen, what the consequences of those decisions would be, and it leads to improvisation. But our readings from the scriptures tonight show us three different groups of people who had made up rules about the Sabbath. And these were rules, they're things that had developed over time by people essentially making it up as they went along. The Lord had established the Sabbath. We thought about that two weeks ago. We looked at the verses in Exodus chapter 20. Just as God ceased work on the seventh day, so his people were to cease work one day in seven. But the first group who had done this work were the Pharisees. And over the years, they had taken God's law and they just added a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more. And even though God's command only prescribed that you weren't allowed to work, they came up with a list of 39 different activities that were not allowed on the Sabbath. Yes, 39. In the order of bread, they banned planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, and cooking. With clothes, they banned shearing, laundering, combing wool, dyeing, spinning, warping, making loops, weaving, separating two threads, tying two threads together, untying, sewing, and tearing. It goes on. With meat and animals, they forbade trapping, killing, skinning, curing, smoothing, scoring, and measured cutting. I don't know what they would have done if you'd done unmeasured cutting. And in construction, there was a ban on writing, erasing writing, construction, demolition, extinguishing a fire, lighting a fire, finishing or perfecting a job, or transferring something within a public thoroughfare. Now, there's not going to be a quiz on that tonight, you'll be glad to hear, but I, I tell you them all to give you an idea of the extent of their rules. None of these things were in the Bible that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees were quite literally religious about keeping them. They believed that in keeping them, they would be rewarded with eternal life. This is how we please God. This is the right way to escape eternal judgment, they thought, to follow rules. And one such subset of those rules is that list of 39 rules about the Sabbath. And the second group that Luke tells us about are the teachers of the law. And if truth be told, we're not entirely sure who the teachers of the laws teachers of the law were. They might have been the, the Sadducees, um, but Mark tells us, if, you read, if we'd read that story in Mark, that there were some Herodians there. Um, so I think maybe Luke used that phrase, teachers of the law, perhaps because there were a mixture of people there, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, 
In any event, it doesn't really matter because again, both those groups of people, the Sadducees and Herodians, were very similar when it came to the Sabbath. They too were very strict. The Sadducees, they didn't believe in a resurrection, so they thought that obeying these laws would bring them God's blessing in the here and now. They thought it might bring a, a Davidic king, a king in the line of David, back to the throne. And the Herodians, well, they got their name because they were loyal to King Herod the Great. And so they thought that being obedient to God would bring them political progress again in the here and now, freedom from the Romans, a king from the line of Herod on the throne. But all these people we've mentioned so far, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the teachers of the law, whoever they were, they were all united against Jesus. And really, it's quite remarkable that they were united on anything because they hated each other. They despised each other. They, they disagreed sharply about religious ideas, the idea of whether there was a resurrection or not. But they were united in that they wanted rid of the Romans with a Jewish king on the throne. Well, the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted a Jewish king on the throne, but the Herodians wanted Herod on the throne. So they all, they all hated one another for different reasons. They, they really did despise one another. We read several accounts in history um, of the Romans having a hard job of keeping the peace among all these Jewish sects. And yet they were all united against Jesus because in their legalism about the Sabbath, apparently it was okay for them to be furious. Apparently it was okay for veins to bulge in anger on their heads on the Sabbath, to plot together on the Sabbath about how they might kill Jesus. That was okay. That wasn't, that wasn't one of the 39 rules that you weren't allowed to do. But it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay if Jesus healed someone or for the disciples to pick a grain of corn to eat. So that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, whoever they are, are very legalistic. They have lots of rules about the Sabbath. But the third group of people who are kind of making up the rules as we go along are the Israelites as we find them in Isaiah chapter 58. But they make up the rules in a slightly different way because what they do is the bare minimum. They work out what is the least that we have to do kind of legally to get there, to, to jump through that legal loophole, to tick the box. We know what to do. We know what the Sabbath is. We know what fasting is, sackcloth and ashes and all that. But we don't actually want to give God our time. We don't actually want to serve Him. They did what they wanted to do on the Sabbath. They exploited their workers. They did the least possible and then got on with their lives. God says from the middle of verse 3 of Isaiah 58, Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends with quarreling and strife and striking one another with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? And God says, no, that's not acceptable. It's meant to be a time of sharing your food and loosing the chains of injustice, breaking yokes of oppression. But you go your own way. In fact, you solidify those things. You go on with those things. You go on your own way. The people were doing the least that they thought was possible to just appease God, just to get there. But God could see their hearts. And I suspect for you and for me, it would be very easy for us to fall into either one 
of those ways of being legalistic. But I want to suggest to you tonight that rest, part of what rest is, true rest, is resistance to legalism. Rest is resistance to legalism. Maybe like the first two groups, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, it's easy for us to decide on things that we won't do on a Sunday or whenever we think the Sabbath is. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other thing. I have to say, when I was growing up, I, I was never allowed to play outside on a Sunday. I was never allowed to kick a football on a Sunday. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. Certainly, when I was smaller, we wouldn't have gone out like we did today after the baptism out for a meal. That would have just been nearly unthinkable. I don't know what's changed, but it has. Or is it the other way around? Do you not really like the sound of all those rules, not being allowed to play football on a Sunday or whatever it is for you? but you still feel that you kind of owe something to God. You know, you need to obey that command somehow, so you do what you feel is the bare minimum. You always go to church. You maybe wear certain clothes as a kind of symbolism that, that you're being dedicated to God, but then you just still go on out afterwards and do things that you think you probably shouldn't. But sure, you went to church. You take the box. Surely God will be pleased. But legalism is not one of the ways in which we will rediscover rest or by which we will please God as having that time of rest holy to the Lord. If you remember Adam Mabry's definition, a time of rest holy to the Lord. And so the first thing I want us to see tonight is that embracing the Sabbath is to resist legalism and indeed to find joy. Mark Buchanan says in his book, which is called The Rest of God, that the joy of Sabbath is elusive to us for two reasons. One is busyness, and we thought a lot about busyness two weeks ago, and we need to address that. But the other, he says, is legalism. And the big problem with legalism is that it misses the point. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law show us this just perfectly. Jesus calls them out on it, in fact, in Luke 6 and verse 9. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? They don't get this, and they want to destroy his life, ironically. I suspect Jesus had Isaiah 58 in his mind when God says that on the Sabbath it's right to loose chains, to, to lift yokes, and where God says it's wrong for fasts to end with the striking of one another with wicked fists. And yet the Pharisees and the teachers of the law they're furious on the Sabbath day. They plot murder on the Sabbath day because apparently that doesn't break the rules. They're not breaking bread. They're not combing wool or whatever those other rules were. It's ridiculous. It's absolute madness that they thought this was okay. To say that the disciples couldn't satisfy their hunger, to say that Jesus couldn't heal somebody and set them free from some physical infirmity, but they can be angry and plot murder. No, they've, they've got it all wrong. And whilst we mightn't be plotting murder on the Sabbath, I want to challenge you tonight, if you are somebody who is legalistic about the Sabbath, who, who's strict about what you do and what you don't do, who gets angry maybe with things that are happening on a Sunday that you think maybe shouldn't be, because I'm not sure that Sabbath is really meant to be like that. Now, you have to live within your own conscience if you feel that God is calling you to set aside this day as holy, and if you feel that that causes you not to do certain things, then that is absolutely fine. I, I, I'm not having a go at that. 
But the Sabbath commandment is the first in the list of commandments, of the Ten Commandments, that is positive. It's not a thou shalt not. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It is a command, and the thou shalt not come later. You know, on it you shall not work. But in the first instance, it's a positive command. It's something to embrace. It's something which Isaiah tells us will be a joy. It's a privilege. It's not something to be legalistic about. And legalism also leads us to self-righteousness. It leads us to thinking that God owes us something because, you know, I've done this, so he'll be pleased with me. That's what the Pharisees thought. But even King David, their hero, broke the Sabbath law. Jesus points out he went into a place in the temple as well where he shouldn't have been to satisfy his hunger, and he gave some to his companions. Do you think God will be pleased with you? you think God will restore the line of David on the throne if you keep these man-made rules? Think again, Jesus said, it's not what God desires. And legalism can cause us to judge others because they're working on a Sunday or they're doing their sport on a Sunday or whatever. But the truth is we have no right to be so judgmental. Yes, it's true that the person might be completely godless and not have any, any faith or any idea of a need for the Sabbath. In that case, we should pray for them that they would come to know Jesus. But maybe that person is a Christian, but we shouldn't look down on them either. Maybe like a minister, they have to work on a Sunday, so they take their Sabbath on a different day of the week. John Calvin once said that it didn't matter what day of the week you celebrated the Sabbath. It could be a Tuesday, but the important part is just to have a pattern of one day in seven. Or maybe the person you're judging is a Christian who hasn't yet grasped or discovered the need for the day of Sabbath and the joy of it. So pray for them, talk to them by all means, encourage them, help them grow, but don't condemn them. We should be slow to judge, quick to listen, slow to condemn, all right to admonish in the Lord, but above all to love and encourage. And yet if we're not going to be super strict legalistic about it, we need not to fall to the other extreme either. Hopefully we've seen in this series that having a Sabbath is important and ignoring it would be a mistake. But we need to be careful of that legalism which just does the bare minimum. I've gone to church, I've done this, I've ticked the box, but the day really is mine. Again, God says, verse 3 of Isaiah 58, yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, asked the Lord, only a day for people to humble themselves, only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? These people were doing all the outward signs. It looked okay, even sackcloth and ashes, but their hearts were nowhere near it. They weren't in it at all. And yet the Lord promises this, verse 13 of that same chapter, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Just ponder those words. It's worth hearing them. 
if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We find joy in keeping Sabbath. God said to his people way back in Leviticus 16, it is a Sabbath of rest and you must deny yourselves. Mark Buchanan summarizes it like this, Sabbath keeping is grounded in a stark refusal we make to ourselves. We stand ourselves down. We resist that which six days of coming and going, pushing and pulling, dodging and weaving, fighting and defending have bred into us. What we deny ourselves is our well-trained impulses to get and to spend and to make and to master. Because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath and he is Lord of our Sabbath. It's no surprise then that we'll find joy here. We find joy in setting aside time to worship. We find joy in playing with our children, yes, even outside, even kicking a football, enjoying time with our family, stepping into a shop, yes, even on a Sunday, to buy an ice cream on a nice day, to do hobbies, to spend time with your spouse, to enjoy creation and enjoy all the good gifts God has given you. But don't go your own way on the Sabbath. Don't make notes for that meeting on Monday morning assuming your Sabbath is on a Sunday. Don't answer those work emails. Don't do things which are selfish, but things which are for Jesus as Lord of your Sabbath, for the enjoyment of the things he has given to you, the people around you that he has placed in your life for your benefit, and do it in thanksgiving to him. Because that brings us to the second point, and don't worry, points two and three are not as long as point one. But that's to say that rest restores our relationship with others because busyness is a terrible thing. Busyness might get us into contact with lots of people through our week, and yet busyness makes us feel isolated because those relationships never have the time to get past the surface level. We never get to connect with anybody deeply by being busy. Think of Jesus taking time with others, taking time at night for Nicodemus when he would have probably rather been asleep, who was so curious, Nicodemus. He took time with the woman at the well who was rejected by other people. He took time to stop in the rush to find the woman who had touched his cloak, even though there was a young girl's life at stake, but he stopped to find out who it was and so that he could look her in the eye and tell her, daughter, your faith has healed you. He took time to speak to children when the others thought he had more important and urgent places to be going. God said when he made Adam that it wasn't good for the man to be alone. So he made a companion for him in Eve. Jesus is the second Adam, the last Adam, and the perfect man. And he knew the importance of investing in relationship. But our world wants us to underplay this. It wants to say that the most important person to invest in is yourself. You focus on being you being authentic, being yourself. Care for yourself above all others. 
And it's not that self-care isn't good or important. In fact, part of the point of this series really is to flag up how important rest is and looking after ourselves is. And if you've missed the last two weeks, I would really encourage you to catch up on them on our podcast or on, no, just on our podcast. The evening services don't go online um, other than the podcast. But for that reason, for your good physically, God knows we need that for our good spiritually, to remember Him, to remember that He is our covenant God. But part of Sabbath is the restoration of relationship with others. Restoring because maybe in the last six days we haven't invested in that relationship. Maybe we've been like passing ships. Maybe we've been short with one another. Maybe we haven't gone past the surface level to tell somebody how we're really doing. Maybe that message or that on the screen or that like on social media, it's not really a substitute for a face-to-face conversation when the phones are away and we actually want to connect with one another. Busyness just torpedoes our relationships with others. And Sabbath is one opportunity, hopefully not the only one, but an opportunity to restore that relationship. If work is off the table, if emails are not being looked at and we're just focusing on that other person, then our relationships can flourish. And it's vital. It's vital for our friendships. It's vital for our marriages. It's vital for our families. I am very far from the perfect husband or father. Don't let anything that anybody else puts up on social media on a day like Father's Day give you any other impression. I am not the perfect husband or father. One thing I am acutely aware of, especially with my children, is the stuff I miss with being out at work. So I I do what I can. I make sure I do the school run in the morning with Sarah. If I have a church meeting at night, I make sure to take some time off earlier in the day to be with them. But I discovered during lockdown, for me, even when I was with them, my phone was a real issue. Getting distracted easily with messages and social media and so on. So what I do now, every evening when I go in, I set my phone on the little unit we have beside our front door, and I leave it there until they go to bed. I don't have my phone on me. It, it's, it's still there. If it rings, if somebody really needs me, I can still go out and get it, but I can ignore all of the other notifications, all the messages and so on, because that time is for them. I'm not going to have a surface-level relationship with them while I'm on my phone having surface-level relationships with others. Also on my day off, I have set my phone so it doesn't disturb me. Unless somebody in the family rings me, then my phone will ring. But anybody else will have to wait. Because all that busyness, it just meant that I was missing out on time with my children. And they were missing out on time with their dad. Far from perfect as I am. The practical things that that you might want to do to think about this, they, they might be like that or they might be slightly different but they're always actually very simple, and we think we can't do them. I I couldn't set my phone aside, but really, you can. Find a way to be cut off from the thing that keeps you busy so that your relationship with others can be restored. And then finally, rest restores our relationship with God. All of our busyness squeezes out time with God. I suppose that much is obvious. But restored relationship with God is so much more than just getting some time with him and and ticking that box, if you like. Notice in the last paragraph in Isaiah 58 that God doesn't just say that if we keep keep our feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as we please, he doesn't just say that we'll find joy. He says 
where we will find that joy. He tells us we'll find it in the Lord. Rest restores our relationship with God. And not just because it means we spend a bit of time with Him. It it does mean that, but it means so much more. Because busyness brings us anxiety. We're anxious about whether we'll get everything done. We're anxious about our boss's approval or our customer's approval. We're anxious that we're not investing in those friendships, that we're not spending enough time with our kids, that we're not making the mark in some way. But to rest says no to that. To rest, to take time to stop wholly to the Lord means that we say to God, I trust you. I trust that even if those things don't get done, it's okay. This is more important. And busyness makes us autonomous. It makes us try to take charge of our own life. Autonomous is the fancy word, but it just essentially means that we try to take control of our own lives, of our timetables and our schedules, our work, our family, our life, and our health as far as that's possible. And we know that if we are in charge of all that, we will have mixed success in terms of it all. But to rest for God means to say to God, I'm not the Lord of my life. You are. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. Busyness puts us under pressure, and the world puts us under pressure. You should look like this. You should earn enough money to live like that. So if you work harder for it, you you have to work longer hours, take up extra shifts. We're being coerced by ourselves and by the world around us to do more, always to do more to achieve things that ultimately leave us empty anyway. But embracing Sabbath says, I will not live that way. I will live as Jesus desires. And busyness can lead us to idolatry. Because ultimately, if we are swamped in busyness, we have an idol. If money's the idol, that might mean we work more. We work endlessly. If you yourself are your own idol, or how you come across on social media is, well, then that's your idol too, and you'll be led to missing out on knowing Jesus. But stopping work, putting the phone down, can lead us to Christ. And I know, (laughs) I know life is demanding. I have a young family, I have aging and ill relatives. Work to do demands on my time. But as Adam Mabry puts it, Jesus placed no asterisk next to his words, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I love that. Jesus placed no asterisk next to those words. And his reward is better than any that our idols can give us anyway. God says through Isaiah that if we rest for him, we will know benefits with him. He says we'll be strengthened, that he will guide us always. He will satisfy our needs in a sun-scorched land. But notice what he says in Isaiah 58 verse 12. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations and you will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. And it would be easy for us to just jump over those and think, well, that's talking about the exile because I think they mean a lot for us today. God said that if they turned to him in rest, they would be restored to Jerusalem, yes. But for us in Christ, the book of Hebrews tells us that we have entered into an eternal rest, that one day we will know that in the new Jerusalem. But what does the author of Hebrews encourage us to do? Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, he says. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are to make every effort to enter that rest because it is His will for you. It's what He has won for you eternally. It's what you can enjoy enjoy a foretaste of now because the Holy Spirit lives in you as a foretaste and a guarantee of the great rest that is to come. Let us then press forward into that rest like Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus while Martha was flapping around with things that weren't important. Resisting legalism, let us make time holy to the Lord to know relationship restored with Him and with others. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have not resisted the way of this world, when we fail to stop and give you the time and place that you are due in our lives. Forgive us when we have been simply so busy that we've forgotten about you. Forgive us for when we fail to relate well to each other or to you because we've been so absorbed in the way the world does things. We've been glued to our screens. We've missed true fellowship with each other. We've been so caught up in working that we've forgotten the people that we want to support with our earnings. And we've been so obsessed with ourselves that we fail to see your ways for our lives. And whether it is busyness that is our enemy right now, or whether life circumstances are simply so tough that we are overwhelmed, we pray that we would learn to stop all our strivings and to say again with the psalmist, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Help us to rest in you. Help us to see your grace and your goodness to us, and help us to find joy resting in you. And Father, we have read words tonight, words that you have spoken to us, words for the good of society, that your people are to be people who share their food with the hungry, that your people are to be people who lift yokes and and fight against oppression. Lord, we realize that there are so many issues going on in our world right now and even in our community. Lord, help us to see those, open our eyes to them, Help us to step out where you want us to do that. But Lord, we also want to pray just at this time for our government. Because Lord, we know what it is to not have a government. We know that lots of people suffered the last time we didn't have a government for so long. And so Lord, we want to pray for our leaders. Lord, the past week has been a difficult time for Stormont, for, for the leading party in particular. Lord, whatever side of the political coin that we identify with, Lord, we pray that there would be a stable government here for the good of your people. Lord, we pray that that would be up and running and that those who need support most would get it from them. So, Lord, we offer ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.